0: We turn then to God's Word, Gospel according to Mark chapter 5, Gospel according to Mark chapter 5. We're going to pick it up at verse 21, read through verse 24, and then we're going to Go over to verse 35 and read through the end of the chapter. Mark 5.21, the breathed out word of the Lord. And When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. There came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Gerarus, by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with him. Verse 35. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house Some who said, your daughter is dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand. He said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. He strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. As far, the reading of God's Word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, once again, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures that you gave to them. Sometimes the Bible is so amazing, it's hard to believe. And we know because it has come from you, it's true. So We thank you for that. We thank you as Pastor Bob preached this morning, that we may hear your voice, your His voice, your word, that we may apply it to our hearts and live closer to you. That's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last Lord's Day, we considered the section that uh, comes between here, the section of the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, the one who touches the hem of his garment and is healed, and then the questions that Jesus asked looking for her so that her faith might indeed be revealed and that she might indeed confess Christ before men. But now we return to the Father. And you can't help but come to this passage and think about the subject of interruptions and how life is filled with multiple interruptions. Our lives each and every day have some sort of hiccup to them. Something happens, something occurs that isn't exactly the way that we had planned out. Whether it's our work, we have it planned out, we think we know where we're going to get by the end of the day, but something happens in the midst of that day, perhaps a piece of equipment breaks, and therefore we're not able to accomplish that which we thought we were going to do. We have a meal prepared in our minds, this is what we're going to make, and then as we begin preparing that meal, lo and behold, one of the ingredients that we need is missing. And now life is filled with an interruption. How are we going to do this? What am I going to do? Do I have to change? Am I going to have time to run to the store to get what I need? We have all sorts of ways we think things are going to go. Coaches, as they sit down with their teams, think about the upcoming game. And they have a game plan for how it's going to go. But life is filled with interruptions. It never seems to go the way that we plan it out. Seldom, seldom does it go without some sort of event, occurrence, happening that has to force us to change our plans. The same is true of this passage, is it not? Think, for example, of the woman who interrupts Gerarus' plan. His plan is to get Jesus to come to his home as quickly as possible. He has a little girl who is at the point of death. There is no opportunity for wasted time. This needs to happen. This needs to happen quickly. And yet his plan is interrupted. Jesus takes time because of a woman who's tugging at the tassel of his robe to talk to her, and now he's sitting there, you can about imagine, as anxious as anxious could be, thinking all the time about his little girl and wondering why it is that we have to take time with this woman. After all, she's healed. Can't we just go on? And yet, we stop. And his plan to get Jesus there before his daughter dies is interrupted. But the woman's plan is interrupted too. Jesus interrupts that. Jesus intervenes in the midst of her plan. See, her plan, as we learned last week, was just to touch that tassel, be healed, and then to melt back into the crowd. She's just going to go on with life. This is her plan. I'm just going to slink back. I'll get back in the back of the crowd, and then I'm going to go home, and we're going to start repairing life. This is what I want. I don't want a scene. I don't want anybody to know. But Jesus... Interrupts her plan. Who touched me? But no one, you see, ever ever interrupts the plan of God. God never goes, didn't know that was going to happen. Wasn't thinking that might be the result. God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. He knows exactly how every moment of day of our life is going to go, as well as the other six billion people upon this planet, as well as each of the stars in the sky, as well as each wave that comes upon the ocean, each current that flows, each snowflake that is formed and falls, God knows it all. And there is never an interruption to the plan of God. See, one might think that, right, when you come to this passage. Suddenly, while he's speaking, somebody comes up and says, the girl is dead. Oh, no, now what am I going to do? Oh, how am I going to handle a death? Oh, I'm prepared to handle those who are well or those who are sick, but how do I handle a death? This is not an interruption to Jesus. In fact, this is part of the plan. The whole stopping to talk to the woman. Jesus knows exactly what's happening in this man's home. He knows that while he's talking to her, the little girl's last breath is escaping from her lungs and she dies. He knows it. He knew it as soon as Gerarus came up to him. He knew it when he was healing the man with the legion of demons. He knew it. When he was born in the manger of Bethlehem, he knew it before the foundations of the world were laid. There is no interrupting the plan of God. And what an amazing comfort, what an amazing hope, what an amazing promise we have in that. We could well stop there and just soak it in and go home and think about the fact God's plans are never interrupted. God is faithful. Always. He never has to deal with a, what's my second alternative? God never has to deal with a, I've got to come up with a due plan. God knows exactly. What is coming? That first of all. Secondly, I want you to note that as we read this section, as we now focus on verses 35 through 43, that this carries with it three challenges. Jesus three times challenges individuals or groups in this section. The first challenge... Is to the Father. And it comes in these words Do not fear, only believe. That's a challenge, isn't it? Considering where we're at, considering the news that this Father has just received your daughter is dead. Now, folks, they don't have this New Testament. Geraris' faith is indeed an uninformed faith. He doesn't really know who Jesus is. And now comes the challenge. See, he's heard about Jesus. There's a commotion about Jesus. This is taking place in Capernaum once again. Many miracles that we've had in Mark 1 through 5 have taken place here. There have been many healings. To believe that Jesus could heal his daughter of her illness is not outside of the scope of the experience that this father has witnessed within his town. Certainly the the synagogue is buzzing about that which Jesus can do, about that which Jesus has done. No matter where he goes, there's this great crowd that follows this man, and the reports keep coming out. He heals, he heals, he heals. He comes to Jesus. My daughter is sick. But now, Based upon the news that the daughter is dead, that faith is challenged. Exactly how much do you believe? You came to me asking me to, to heal my, your daughter from an illness. Do you believe I can raise her from the dead? Actually, the way this comes off in the Greek is the idea of him saying to Jairus, don't don't just believe once, keep believing. Every step we take now, believe. Believe, believe. See, think about the circumstances, the reality of this. You've just received the news that your daughter is dead. The man that you hoped to come to your home to heal her from her illness... Is saying she's going to live again? Just believe, and that statement is made publicly. Who is this guy? He is the leader of the synagogue. What might be the tendency here? <laughs> well, th- thanks, Jesus, but I, I think this is way outside of your realm. There, there's no way possible. She's going to be healed now. She's dead. Just stay here. Talk to your disciples. Talk with this lady some more. Whatever. But I'm going home. i got to go home and mourn. I've got to go home the loss. And you know what? He'd save some face with the people. Right? He'd save some face at least with with the Jewish leaders, with the religious leaders. Oh, see, he came, but now he realizes what great wisdom. He, as the synagogue leader, has shown in that now he's turning his back on Jesus and walking away, realizing the limitations that Jesus has, realizing that Jesus is just some man and not who he's portraying himself to be. He's just walked away. Oh, the best thing Gerarus could do for his life, for his career, is to just turn his back on Jesus at this point and walk away. And so what does Jesus do? Keep. Believing. Don't leave me now. Don't turn your back now. Walk with me. Let's go to your house. Every step of this journey is a challenge to the faith of this Father. It is the same challenge that Jesus brings to you and I. Keep believing. Keep believing. Don't give up hope. Because you see, the journey is somewhat the same for us, is it not? There is a promise that Jesus has given. I will return. Been walking 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years for some of you with Jesus. Every day, keep believing. There is the promise of forgiveness in and through his blood. Challenging us every day. Keep believing. There are the voices of the world that keep hurling at us challenges to the words of Jesus. And what does Jesus keep challenging us with? Keep believing. And the Father walks with Jesus. The challenge to the Father. But there's another challenge here it's the challenge to three disciples. Did you notice what happens here? Jesus, okay, verse 37, allows no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John. Now, this had to be challenging. First of all, it has to be challenging to the other nine, right? There's a challenge here. It's interesting, but we do not read here that the other nine confer with one another over, hmm, Why is he taking just three? There seems to be no note of jealousy. Yet that certainly could have arisen here. But nothing is stated. Nothing is told of that. By taking these three, there is a challenge to these other men's faith. Is it okay that three are chosen for a closer relationship or a higher privilege or a greater privilege than myself? Or does this cause me... To become jealous? Does this cause me to become angry? Or am I okay that some people receive some blessings in this world that are greater than the blessings that I receive? Is that okay? That's a challenge to our faith, isn't it? It challenges that self-pity. It challenges that pride. But it's not only a challenge to the other nine, it's the challenge to the three. A challenge to the three to keep it in perspective. Yes, I'm taking you with you, but don't tell anybody what you have seen. How could you not tell this? How could you not be Peter, James, and John and go back to the other nine and tell them? Jesus has done this frequently, hasn't he, in the Gospel of Mark? Heals somebody and then says, don't tell anybody. It's a challenge for them to keep it in perspective. Not to become haughty, not to become arrogant, not to become prideful over the fact that they have been chosen. But there is another challenge to these three as well, right? It's sort of a calling out to them and saying, okay, the father is willing to walk with me, but he's got an investment, doesn't he? He's got a little girl. You guys aren't invested in this, are you? But I challenge you to walk with me. Come with me. Even though I have set Don't fear, only believe. Are you willing to walk with me to this man's house? Are you willing to stay with me even though we're dealing with a dead little girl now? See, sometimes we're willing to grasp on to Christ for forgiveness. But we're not willing to grasp on to Christ to be our Lord. And that's what's being challenged here. Are you willing to follow me as your Lord? Third challenge is the challenge to these mourners. He comes to the house and there, okay, he saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. Professional mourners who have gathered rather quickly, don't you think? Isn't this rather interesting? The father just got news. Your daughter is dead. You can but imagine that at the last breath of this little girl, some servant ran as fast as he possibly could to town, which probably isn't very far. We're only dealing with a matter of minutes. By the time he gets there... Okay. And as Jesus walked that little distance, there is a group of people already gathered mourning. You almost get the feeling that this group has been waiting with expectation. Hey, we heard there's a little girl sick at the synagogue ruler's house. Let's go there. Maybe there's going to be an opportunity to make some money. Because you see, that's what's happening here. These people are paid. This is their job. They're not really mourning in the sense of, oh, the great loss they felt. No, this is just their job. And of course, because he's a dignitary, it's more important that they show up. The money is going to come in even greater numbers. They're not going to make minimum wage on this one. They're going to make the prevailing wage on this one. Who's not going to show up for this job? And so they're they're like vultures waiting for the girl to die. Not because they care about her dying, but they care about their pocketbook. As soon as she died, there they are at the gate. Hey, we're willing to serve as your professional mourners. And they're already in action, they're already weeping and wailing loudly over that which has happened. And then comes Jesus. Challenge Why are you weeping? It is likely that these folks knew that Geraris, the father, isn't home. They probably had been gathered outside of the gates of this guy's house, wherever, Okay, and they saw him leave. Where where are you going? Your daughter is ill. I'm going to get Jesus. I'm going to ask Jesus to come. While he's gone finding Jesus, the news filters out of the home she's dead. So they begin their mourning. Why are you weeping? Now, the answer they would give is, well, because the girl is dead. The answer Jesus is challenging them with is this. You knew I was coming. You knew I was coming. So why are you weeping? What a, see the challenge there? See, they should have known. Jesus is coming. Even though the girl is dead, Jesus is coming. We don't need to start our mourning. We don't need to start our hypocrisy. We don't need to start this. We can can wait because Jesus is coming. He will restore this girl to life. Jesus is coming. But you see, there is no faith here. And that is what Jesus is challenging. He's challenging those of no faith. See, it's interesting as you go back now. To Jairus, it's a challenge of someone with small faith, weak faith, immature faith. To the disciples whose faith has grown, has developed, he's still challenging them. Let's put it to the test. To those of no faith, the challenge is why? Do you not believe? She's only sleeping. This is only temporary. And they laugh. We could well say they reject. We could well say they turn their backs upon Christ. Three challenges. Then, once Jesus is there in the room, we see, thirdly, the resurrection of the daughter. I want you to note three things, three actions of Jesus. One, he took her by the hand. I don't know if you've thought about this or not, but even in the miracles we've had along the way in the Gospel of Mark, there's been a, a little nagging, little question, even in my mind. Jesus is often touching people who are untouchable. He's touching lepers. Okay? And even though it's indirect, the woman with the issue of blood is still touching his garment, and according to the law, that meant defilement as well. Here, there is a dead girl that he touches. That's a whole long list of Levitical laws that are now coming into question. And so the question is, why isn't Jesus defiled by his touching of the lepers, by his touching of those with diseases, by his touching of those with demons, by his touching of this dead girl? In the same way, my friends, in the same way, that Jesus is not defiled at all by the fact that your sin and my sin is laid upon him. He bears all of my sin. And I can tell you, folks, he'd be pretty defiled. And add on it, your sins? Think of the defilement of Christ. And yet, Scripture tells us, he was without sin. This is part, you see, of the mystery of the human and divine natures of Christ. That because of his divinity, because of his holiness, because of his purity, that which would ordinarily defile does not. My sin was laid upon Christ, but Christ never became a sinner. He touches A dead little girl, but he never becomes defiled. He took her by the hand. The amazing compassion and love of Christ. What a loving. Thing to do. Some of you have been in the presence of death. Some of you have seen death. Some of you have been at the death of an individual. We all react differently. one of the most common reactions for us is to pull back. Jesus leans in. He touches her hand. This is not something that repulses me. This is not something that makes me shrink in horror. This is not something that makes me uncomfortable. This is not something that sends shivers down my spine. This is the compassion and love of Christ. He takes her by the hand. And he speaks to her. Little girl. Actually, the literal literal translation is this. Little lamb. Get up. (laughs) Do you hear the tenderness? Do you hear the compassion? Little lamb. Standing in that room is the man who later on is going to write about the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd and that he knows his sheep and he calls them by name. Standing in that room is a man to whom Jesus has looked in his face and give him the challenge, feed and take care of my lamb. Little lamb, arise. And immediately, we are told, immediately, fully restored. Immediately, she got up. Immediately, she began walking. Immediately, they're amazed. See, there's no process here. There's no, well, you know, she began to flutter her eyes. <clears throat> A little gasp. A couple of fingers moved. A couple of toes and an arm. There's no process here. Immediately, life is given. Immediately, she gets up. Immediately, she walks around. And immediately, the reaction is one of amazement. And then he says, prepare her some food. (laughs) The tenderness and compassion of Christ. One would imagine, given the circumstances that we are given in this passage, that this little girl has probably been ill and sick for a period of time. You know how you are. I know how I am when I'm ill and sick. I don't want to eat. And sometimes we have to even encourage our children, come, just have a little something to drink. You need a little, I don't want anything to drink. Well, how about just a little, I don't want any soup. Well, how about just a little, jello? I don't want any jello. Right? We, we, we've been sick. Right? We, we've resisted food because we've been ill. It would appear that this little girl perhaps says, Been in some sort of a coma even, realizing that she is at the... She has been unable to take in food. The first thing that Jesus says to do for her is give her that which she needs. Give her food. Give her the nourishment. Give her the sustenance that she needs. See, there's no interruption in the plan of God. This is what... Jesus, before the foundations of the earth, knew he was going to do. But here is the glorious message of this passage. This isn't about a little girl. This is about you and me. Because the miracle of death to life is that which has already occurred for us. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians. Keep your finger back here if you want it, Mark. But we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Notice the two words, dead and alive. That's what we had in Matthew 5. A dead girl who is now alive. A dead girl who is touched by Jesus. A dead girl who was spoken to by Jesus. A dead girl who did nothing for her own resurrection. It's all Jesus. Jesus. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You were dead, but, but God Being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk. Notice what she did. She got up and walked. What does God do? God makes us alive so that we may walk in them. New birth, being born again, is not a process. We go from death to life, immediately. And now Jesus says, feeder. her. Jesus, even as Jesus offers to you and I, now that you have come from death to life, I nourish you. I nourish you. Imagine if we had read in in Mark chapter 5 the following, and the girl got up. Jesus said, prepare her a meal. But the girl said, no, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to eat. I don't need that. I get along just fine without eating. I'll be fine. And every meal that is prepared for her, she resists says, no, I don't need to eat. It's not necessary for me to eat. I'm 12 years old, I don't need to eat. How many of us come to this table thinking we don't need it? Next Lord's Day, this table is prepared. The meal Christ has given to us to nourish us spiritually. How many of us will say, I don't need that. That's that's not necessary. I I don't need that nourishment. I don't need to be fed by the Lord. I'll be just fine on my own. How many of us will spend this week thinking with the great hope and expectation of the fact, I'm going to get fed this week. I'm going to get fed by Christ. My shepherd is preparing a meal for me so that I may be strengthened and nourished. Come. Because Christ, who has brought you from death to life, has prepared a meal for you, to nourish you, to strengthen you. And God's people say,